With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Showing your good side has many rewards. Become a donor at Griffles Plasma, and your plasma can make life-saving medicines. Millions of people depend on these medicines to live healthier, more active lives. And every time you donate with Griffles Plasma, you're compensated. You can receive over $500 the first month. Learn more about plasma and how it helps people at grifflesplasma.com. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hey, folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not so good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 137 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with co-host David Park. Tonight on the show, we have a great guest, Greg Smith. He is a former Marine. He was a longtime business partner of Eric Prince of Blackwater, and he was the CEO of Frontier Services Group. Um, welcome to the show, Greg. We're going to jump right into it. We have a ton of material to cover here tonight. Dave, if you want to uh, give a shout out to our first sponsor for tonight. Yeah, uh, uh, I do. Um, so our first sponsor for tonight is uh, Chill Boys. Uh, they make super comfortable boxers and boxer briefs to keep the boys chill. Um, chill Boys boxers come in different styles. They offer relaxed, fit bamboo and performance boxers. And I don't know if you guys have ever uh, used like bamboo cotton. Like I love t-shirts that are bamboo. It's, it's lighter than actual cotton. It's really nice. And they have anti-chafing uh, boxer briefs. Uh, very soft. Very. I mean, I I love them. Um, Chill Boys offers bamboo bamboo socks, which are also very comfortable, and bamboo long johns, which we haven't tried, but uh, I'm down. Uh, save 15% on your first order by using our team discount code TEAM15 at chillboys.com. That's TEAM15 at chillboys.com. Keep those boys chill. So... 
Greg, uh, thank you for coming and spending some time uh, on a Friday evening with us. We really appreciate it. Um, I thought we'd dive right into it, um, talking because we have so much to cover. But if you could briefly tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you came into the Marine Corps um, and what your military career was like, uh, we'd really like to get a sense of kind of who you are as a person. Yeah, sure, Jack. Um, I uh, graduated from high school in 1980, right in the middle of the Iran uh, hostage crisis. And, uh, you know, as a senior in high school, uh, growing up in a small town in Michigan, uh, you, we used to watch that on the evening news every night. And uh, so the really the day I turned 18, so I graduated from high school when I was 17, the day I turned 18, I uh, went and signed up. I went find find the locus gunner, local gunnery sergeant and uh, joined the, the Marine Corps. So I went in on uh, early 1981, um, went into the infantry, uh, 0351 Infantry Assault. I spent uh, four years in the Marines, um, 15 months Marine Barracks Guam. Then I rotated to 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines at Lejeune Weapons Company. Uh, and I spent the rest of my uh, career there, uh, deployed twice to Beirut in 1983, um, did a CACS, did Jungle Warfare School, did a tour in Okinawa. Uh, you know, we were a very deployable unit at the time. So, you know, I, I left the Marines in 1985 with the lasting memory of uh, 241 of my buddies that didn't come home mm -hmm. in 1983. So, you know, that, that's, that has stuck with me uh, and it will never leave me. So I had a short Marine Corps career, four years, a uh, very deployable unit, though, uh, went all over the world with 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines, and uh, actually did a short stint with 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, because we were the quick reaction force on uh, October 23rd, 1983, and we replaced the headquarters element of uh, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, unfortunately. And so what was your um, transition like out of the Marine Corps and sort of jumping into the private sector? Well, there's no private sector, because, you know, I went in enlisted. So, you know, the guys who went in as officers, you know, they, they go from uh, the military to private sector. The rest of us have to find our way in life. So I went back to Michigan State University, uh, got a finance degree, uh, went into banking, then investment banking. Uh, a couple years later, I went and got my MBA at the University of Michigan, uh, ended up as a partner at Deloitte uh in new york running their corporate finance group um uh, running the u.s corporate finance group so i had a very nice job at deloitte um and then you know as unfortunate things happened uh, my friends kind of call me the forrest gump but on um on 9 11 2001 i was um on the uh, i guess i think it was the sixth train i guess usually stop at fulton street and uh walk through the trade center um uh, area and then to my office, the World Financial Center. And for some reason that morning, the train was not stopping. And uh, someone uh, whispers on the train, geez, I, I, heard I heard there was an explosion at the Trade Center. So well, that's interesting. So our train stops uh, at Wall Street, which is two stops where from where it usually stops. And I'm getting off at the Wall Street stop coming up the stairs just as the uh, second plane is slamming into the South Tower. Wow. So, I, you know, I look at that and then, you know, as Marines were trained, we're trained to, uh, you know, march to the sound of the guns. 
after conferring for several minutes with some folks, all I could see was that my building looked like it was on fire, the World Financial Center, um, uh, number two. So uh, I started heading down the West Side Highway, and it took quite you know some time to get down there. And as I got to uh, Albany Street, for those New Yorkers that are listening in today, I'm across from, I think it was the Marriott Financial Center that used to be across from there. So I'm standing there and I'm talking to two firemen saying, you know, how do I get over here? You know, I'm pointing towards the World Financial Center. And we talk about going, you know, down by the water and all that. And just then the South Tower starts collapsing on us. Um, and when it started collapsing, it looked like it was the top was coming down on us. And I'm like, holy shit. And you, you guys probably had these moments, but it was that moment where you're thinking, well, I never thought I was going to die this way. Um, fortunately, uh, we, I was able to run about, I don't know, probably 100 yards and then uh, dive into a parking garage. Um, and because we were getting impacted by the South Tower debris hitting us, me, two firemen, and a cop, we just headed as low as we could. We went four stories underground. About 45 minutes later, we were able to get back out after kind of beating our way through some doors. And um, I ended up leaving lower Manhattan on 9-11, around 11 a.m. I was the only guy on a um, tugboat after we'd evacuated everyone that we could see coming out of the South Tower area. And, um, you know, so that was kind of my, my second terrorist attack, if you will. There, there was actually the third because I was also in Beirut in April of 83 when they blew up the um, the consulate there. So, you know, by the time I was a 38-year-old businessman, I had been through, you know, three terrorist attacks and one of them, you know, ground zero, uh, New York City. Um, before, so that's kind of that story. Before we before we move on, Greg, I mean, that's an insane story. And I, I mean, thank God that the four of you were able to, to get undercover. But um, I just wanted to rewind uh, for a brief moment because you told us that you had met Eric Prince for the first time in 1996, um, prior to 2001. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that interaction was like before we jump a little further forward. Yeah, sure. I was actually going to hit Eric because Eric and I met up the Thursday after 9-11 at Smith & Walensky's at 43rd and 3rd for lunch, and I'll go into that here in a minute as well. But... Um, yeah, so in 1996, I was a managing director in Deloitte's corporate finance practice, specializing in the automotive industry. So, you know, just kind of a run-of-the-mill investment banker. And one of my young guys, a guy who becomes important to the long-term story here, a guy named Jason DeYonker, who ended up buying Blackwater in 2010. Um, Jason comes to me, he's about 27 at the time, and he goes, hey, I've met this guy, he's a, he's a, he's a SEAL. You know, you might get along with them because you're a Marine. You know, this is before SEALs were as legendary as they are now. Uh, you know, SEAL is just a SEAL. And, you know, Marines thought of any SEALs just just another sailor. Um, uh, the only sailors we really knew were corpsmen. Um, so in any event, I said, yeah, I'd like to meet the guy. And we all knew the Prince family from Michigan. You know, they had just sold the family business for a billion dollars. Um, Eric's sister, sister, Betsy, was very involved. And, you know, in Republican politics in Michigan. So they were a big deal. Uh, I'd never even heard of Eric Prince before then. But uh, Jason says, hey, uh, yeah, Eric is, you know, he's, he's out of the SEALs. You know, he's like my age, he's like 27. And um, uh, he's got this 
training camp he's building down in North Carolina. And uh, we're invited. So I uh, got in the car a couple of days later, drove from Detroit to Grand Rapids, Michigan, to a little airport there. And uh, we hopped on Eric's mom's jet and we flew from uh, Grand Rapids down to, a, I think we flew into Elizabeth City, uh, the nearest airstrip there. And then we uh, drove up to Moyak, North Carolina, the home of the famous Blackwater Lodge and Training Center. And at that time, that's what it was, was a, was a training center. He was setting something similar up to like what Crucible is now or whatever. Yeah, it was hardly even that. So, you know, Eric, you know, Eric inherited hundreds of millions of dollars uh, when his father passed away. Uh, he invested about $10 million or so in this piece of real estate, I think. And at that point, um, there was a, a fairly well-known SEAL by name of Al Clark. He was a firearms instructor in the SEAL teams that Eric was partnering with. And they were just at that point really just bulldozing the ranges. So even though it was a big piece of property in the uh, swamps down there, that's why it's called Blackwater, uh, uh, the dismal, the great dismal swamp in North Carolina, uh, it really wasn't much. I mean, and the only money they were making, you know, occasionally maybe SEAL Team 8 would go down there, Eric's old SEAL Team, and train, but they weren't getting much of that. And they were really making their money selling targets. They were building target systems, mm -hmm. uh, reactive steel target systems. So it was, you know, a couple thousand acres in the middle of the swamp, um, building some ranges and a warehouse building targeting systems. And so that was your first meeting with, uh, with Eric Prince. And then what came about? Uh, I mean, was, was there a kind of a sustained contact between you two? And, and what led to that sort of lunch a few days after 9-11? Well, yes. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, from there on, um, uh, Eric and I became friends. And I would literally talk to him or see him a couple times a month for the next 15 years. And then I literally talked to him every day for five or six years uh, or saw him every day or spent time at his house or his villas around the world. And my teams, um, whether I was at Deloitte or when I moved on to a company called CIT, uh, we were his investment bank. So, you know, I helped him buy a, uh, a mixer company, um, um, concrete mixer company. Uh, and then we helped him sell a company. And then when he was looking at financing things at Blackwater, he would come to me for advice and counsel. And, you know, we talk about different financing options and we, we would get that done. And I just became a business advisor and a friend. And on 9-11, uh, unfortunately, Eric was in New York City because his uh, uh, first wife, Joni, uh, was fighting cancer and she was at St. Vincent's. So uh, he had to come up a couple of days after 9-11 uh, for some, some of her treatment. So Eric and I, you know, he said, you know, where are you at, Greg? And I told him where I was and we went over to Smith and Walensky. And, you know, I, I, I want to give people an idea of what we're dealing with here. And the folks that see me on Twitter are like, Geez, this guy hates Eric Prince. It's actually not the case. Eric Prince and I were friends for 20 years. I do not hate the man. Mm -hmm. However, what I have learned over the years is that some of the things he had the audacity to commit to overseas starting in 2010, and we'll eventually get there, came back to the U.S. in 2016, 17, 18, and 19, 20. And that's what worries me. So it's not that I hate Eric Prince. 
It's not that I want to see him in jail. I just don't want to bring what he was doing overseas back to America. Mm. And some of it's coming back to America. And I'll explain exactly where it's come back on a number of occasions. And it's just not right. So that, that's kind of where I am with Eric kind of psychologically. But we were very good friends for a very long time. You know, I went to his, his wife's funeral. I went to his weddings. I've met all of his wives. I know all of his children. I've had hundreds of meals with the guy. Uh, I've been with him on four, four continents at least, probably in 30 countries. Um, so we spent a lot of time together. I know Eric really well. I know Blackwater really well. And I know all the derivations that came out of that and the people that circle around and some of the things that have went on are, they're just not right. So after 9-11, of course, the global war on terror uh, kicks off and, you know, America changes, the American military changes. There's been a lot written about and talked about the privatization of the military. Um, I don't know how much of a uh, top level, high level um, conversation we necessarily need to or, or even want to have about that. But that was the atmosphere at the time. Um, what, what was, how did, how did Blackwater begin to evolve after 9-11? And how did your role with the company evolve at that time? Yes. Yeah, so, so it actually, there, there was probably about five different inflection points at Blackwater, right? So as I said, between 96 and 98, it was really just ranges in a swamp, with a targeting system. And, you know, they would get local police and people come to use the ranges. And they had good trainers and it was interesting. Um, but help me with my timing. I think the first big one was the coal. So when the coal was attacked in Yemen. That's like 2000, Navy, right? Uh, was that 98? No, 2000. 2000. 2000. So, yeah. Okay. So it was actually Columbine that came first then. Okay. In yes. terms of the flexion. Mm -hmm. So the attack on Columbine, Eric quickly saw the opportunity there that he didn't think that the, uh, the, the police forces were reactive enough, right? Mm -hmm. that, that they were standing off instead of going in. Right. Um, so he set up something down, down at Blackwater called Are You Ready High School? And they started bringing in cops, I mean, hundreds and thousands of policemen from around the country to train at Blackwater. So that was the first one. They finally got their legs and started making some money. And that was to train folks how to go and go after an active shooter. Right. Okay. Right. So that was, that was big for Blackwater. The second big thing for Blackwater was the USS Cole. So that's when the Navy discovered that those, those sailors up there um, uh, on deck carrying those M14s didn't know how to use them. So uh, the entire East Coast fleet uh, was sent down to Blackwater to train in small arms. So that was the second big contract. So he started getting all the police, local, state, county police, and then he started getting uh, the East Coast, uh, uh, the entire East Coast Navy. So those were the two big inflection points. And then it was really when we went into Iraq that the business completely took off. Mm -hmm. And when um, there was a contract that went out to all the security companies, uh, basically to provide security guards for the green zone. Uh, and most of the folks, and uh, David, you mentioned earlier, like the Crucible, um, you know, my good friends, Kelly McCann and Jack Stradley, they looked at that contract and they said, we'd love to do that contract, 
but it's not possible for us to put people in there with the equipment you want to legally in the time frame you want us to. Right. So right. folks like the Crucible and uh, T Triple Canopy, you know, Gar and a bunch of folks, they, they basically said, we can't even bid on that contract. Blackwater raised their hands. They said, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. They just shipping contractors into the green zone. And uh, that business went from zero to 3,000 contractors uh, in the course of about eight months. It, it was interesting because, I mean, for, for security, for interpreters, for services, like there was this immediate need for these mass amount of peoples. And generally the companies that had like these GSA contracts, right, the, the, just kind of the open-ended contracts for government services were able to find a way to, to utilize those contracts to get in there. And, and there was a need. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody would argue that the security personnel, like all these support personnel weren't, weren't necessary and the military couldn't do it. Um, but you had some really shady organizations going on. I remember like the one organization, Custer Battles, was like meeting their guys at the border with like broken down AKs and like there was a lot of shady stuff going on. Oh, no, there was a lot of shady stuff. And the Blackwater guys weren't shady. Right. They, they just, they weren't trained properly. Right. And I wanted to go back to my first meeting down in Blackwater and, you know, kind of set the tone on culture because this is permeated for the next 25 years then. So if you kind of look at the culture, the first time I went to Blackwater, I'd mentioned Al Clark, who was a firearms instructor, um, you know, in, in the SEAL teams, I think with SEAL Team 8, but maybe with some other teams too. Um, and Al was, he was really good on the range. And I remember going down to the range and I'm talking to Gary Jackson, who became the president of Blackwater. And you could just feel the tension. I could feel the tension between Eric and Al. There's another guy there, and I think his name, name was Dale Ford. And I pulled Gary aside. I said, what the hell's going on? He goes, well, we're going to have a gunfight. And I'd been watching Al on the range for the last hour. And I'm like, if you're having a gunfight, I'm on their team. Um, but, you know, that kind of started the culture. You know, if you're looking at a business, a, contra- a PSC business, mm-hmm. PMC business, like a dying corp, it starts with a very, you know, it's got compliance, it's got leadership, it's got rules, it's got that. Right. This started with four SEALs on the range. Five years later, there's 3,000 of them being deployed. Right. And right. They, there was no infrastructure, and they never caught up with it. Right. In terms of the things that are important to make sure things are done right. Right. You know, it started with, we're going to have a gunfight, to... Literally seven years later, we've got four bodies hanging from a bridge in Fallujah of Blackwater contractors because something went wrong that didn't have to go wrong. Right. Right. Yeah, you I, I know that like uh, like TC and some of those other companies, they had very strict like quality control standards. Um, they had a training program that if you messed up, you were out, things like that. But I think Blackwater just got this contract. And, you know, when you're tr- when you. When you tell the government that you can have, you know, 800 people with these qualifications overseas in this amount of time, you don't have those people on hand. You're not paying them. So you've just got to start flooding people. Yeah. And the problem is once you start trying to catch up, 
you can never catch up. Right, right. And, you know, Gary Jackson, who ended up running Blackwater for most of the time uh, up until 2007, Gary is a great guy. He uh, SEAL teammates, other SEAL teams, did a lot of uh, drug interdiction stuff in, uh, you know, the Caribbean and South America. Uh, and I loved spending time with Gary as much as any other human being on the face of the earth. He was a lot of fun. He was full of energy. But he was a SEAL, and then he was running a company doing $500 million a year in revenue, like four years later. Right. He had zero training for that. Right. The legal and the compliance and the quality control, right. it just never, ever caught up. And that's why, to those of you that spend time over there, Blackwater probably felt and looked out of control. Well, it was out of control. And... Uh, you know, that, that was kind of proven out, obviously, in Nisor Square in 2007. But, you know, the, the fact remains that Blackwater, ultimately, their two top executives pled guilty to firearms violations. Um, Eric himself had to uh, sign up for a deferred prosecution agreement for the same firearms violations and sanction violations. Uh, and after Nisor Square, the business more or less fell apart so how how i think we have to do we have to get the sponsors real quick uh real quick and then i want to ask you a question about the fire uh, go, go know, ahead and ask, ask dave um hey guys so uh our other sponsor is ridge wallets um now i don't know if you guys i like i i hate carrying a wallet in my back pocket ridge has these great little wallets that are actually front pocket wallets uh, they expand. You, they have the little screws in them. They have a flexible, uh, flexible band right here, little money clip. But for the uh, for the cards and stuff, you can just pop them out right here and go through them. Very comfortable. Stop sitting on your wallet. It's bad for your back. Um, uh, is there anything else? I, uh, anyway, it's a great design. Love it. It's super compact. You won't even notice it in your front pocket. And go to ridge.com/team10. To get 15% off your order, ridge.com slash team10 for 15% off your order. And then the other sponsor we want to tell you guys about tonight is 10,000 Apparel. They are a uh, fitness company. Uh, they make all sorts of cool uh, shirts and shorts. Uh, I use their stuff when I work out myself. Um, really had a good experience with them so far. Probably the best workout apparel that I've ever had, ever owned, ever used. And you can go check them out at 10,000.cc slash team for 15% off your purchase. So 10,000.cc slash team, and you'll get 15% off your purchase. I highly recommend using those guys. Yeah, they're great. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. So in the initial part, because I talked about like what Custer Battles are doing, how did Blackwater manage to to get the weapons, you know, into because they're security guys, they've got to have weapons. They're not getting you no, know, there's no arms room, military arms room they can draw from. How did they manage to get the weapons into the country? And was it I, I did they have to fudge it initially? Uh, I think initially they did. I heard a lot of stories from a lot of the guys around that office when I'd go down there and I just, I'll just leave it at that. I think they did uh, in order to get the, all the folks in there and the weapons they needed to, uh, 
to equip them. Uh, you know, so that early part of what with this 03, I guess, uh, you know, I think that was just chaotic. Yeah. Uh, for Blackwater. But, you know, they, they kind of caught up a little bit on that front in terms of the logistics front. Right. You know, so by the time we got to, you know, Fallujah in, uh, was that 04? Um, you know, Blackwater, it, it was running pretty well in terms of, it was clicking, it was making a ton of money, but it was growing like crazy. And, you know, it went from, like I said, basically um, a couple thousand acres in the swamp and some ranges being built. You know, now they had 3,000 contractors. They had a new headquarters building. They had two airstrips. Um, they had 25 ranges. They had ranges built just for the CIA that none of us would, could go down there to. Um, they had the best ranges in the country. Um, they had a air, 72 aircraft uh, that were, you know, moving around in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, so the business between 01 and 04 literally went from 15 million a year in sales to 400 million a year in sales, which is, which is you know, a bit insane. Um, and uh, they were starting to get their legs. They were bringing in more professional contractor folks mm -hmm. to help with the contracts. They were trying to catch up with uh, attorneys and compliance folks, although I don't think they ever did. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, then, you know, Fallujah happened, which threw their reputation into a little bit of a tailspin, but it also made them really well known, right? You know, those were the Blackwater contractors. They probably made more money because of that. Uh, and then the end of Blackwater, even though Eric didn't sell it to 2010, and I advised him on that sale, came in 2007 with the Nisor Square shooting. Now, can and, you tell us for for the people who may not be old enough or or uh, may not just remember what was the Fallujah incident and then the Nisor Square incident? Well, the Fallujah incident, um, Blackwater was running. I think it was a couple food trucks through Fallujah, and uh, they had a uh, security detail of four folks. I think it was two former Rangers and two former SEALs, and basically they just got ambushed. So they got ambushed and they got executed immediately um, in their cars. And then their bodies got dragged out of the cars, got dragged through the streets, burned, and eventually hung from a bridge in Fallujah. And uh, for, I, I forget those people that are too young to remember this, but uh, that was a searing image for all of us, looking at those bodies of those four American uh, veterans hanging from that bridge in Fallujah. Yeah. And ultimately, that led to, I think it was the 5th Marines and some other regiments had to move into, into Fallujah. And basically, they went um, house to house and destroyed that town over the next 12 months. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And then Nisor Square, you made some references in, in the case of both of these incidents that you felt they didn't, they didn't have to happen. That 
there were questions that weren't asked. There were oversight that didn't happen. I mean, from your point of view, what should have happened? Why, why do you think those incidents happened? Well, from my understanding, in Fallujah, it was a matter of the folks hadn't been in country long. They weren't given the proper um, orientation to what was supposed to be done and what the environment looked like. And they, they went out completely unprepared to be ambushed. I, I think they were in a goddamn sedan at the time um, that they were ambushed. Um, so, I mean, it, it was they weren't equipped properly. They weren't oriented properly. They didn't have the right maps. And uh, they just flat out got ambushed. Brave men, good military guys. Uh, and I don't think uh, things worked out. You know, it just wasn't right. By the time we got to 2007, though, in Nisor Square, you got to remember, you know, when I talk about the Fallujah guys, those were all special operators, right? By the time you look at the guys that got convicted in 2000 for the 2007 Nisor Square massacre of those civilians, those were not special operators. Those were, were young Marines, young soldiers, you know, E-4s and E-5s that hadn't spent a lot of time in theater, maybe none at all, right? right? And so you got a completely different situation when you pull into a town square and you think you're taking fire, but you're not taking fire and you're trying to figure it out. And the guy to your left starts shooting and you're wondering, did I just get shot at or was that an outbound? And then all of a sudden there's 17 dead civilians. Um, so by the time we got to 2007 at Blackwater, it was really a matter of, they had thrown so many people into the theater so quickly that you went from having top-notch tier one operators to run-of-the-mill Marines. And I'm a run-of-the-mill Marine, so I get that. And, uh, you know, my training wasn't such, and I've been in combat, I've been in firefights, but I tell you, my first firefight, I'm trying to figure out where the hell something, where did that just come from? Mm. You know, who's shooting? Am I shooting? You know, where's it coming from? And I think, we had folks that weren't qualified to be there behind machine guns and with automatic weapons in a very crowded roundabout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's something that definitely happened, especially with the security companies, is when the war first kicks off, uh, yeah, you can get, you know, Delta and, and SEALs and Rangers and SF and these guys because, you know, they got out, now they're, you know, you're, you're giving them six, $800 a day. But then as the contracts get more competitive and you run out of those guys who are willing to deploy, right? I mean, there's only so many, you know, veterans of, uh, you know, from those units, but you still need to push the numbers and you start getting a anybody who has a military, you know, a DD-214. Yeah, no, that was pretty much it. And, you know, so, so, when Nisar Square, I had been talking to Eric for several years before Nisar Square. And I was like, basically, you know, I'm, you know, I'm an investment banker. I'm like, you need to monetize Blackwater. You're just pouring money into it. So, you know, if you describe Blackwater without saying the name and you say, well, it's owned by a guy that dropped out of the Naval Academy, that quit the SEALs pretty much right after he got it through BUDS, that's under a deferred prosecution agreement, it's two senior executives have been convicted of crimes that's had 30 of its employees killed in the field. They just had 17 
innocent civilians massacred by its employees. If you just describe that, you know, Greg, what are you talking? You know, what is that? Is that even a company? Right. How is that? So, I mean, but that's what Blackwater was. And that's what the leadership was. So I had been trying to convince Eric since about 2005, just sell the damn thing. You can make a billion dollars sell it. Mm-hmm. And he could have made a billion dollars. So after Nisor Square happened, Eric literally called me that day. He said, Greg, can you come down to Moyak? We have a problem. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I just read about it. Um, so I went down to Moyak and Eric says, let's put it up for sale. I said, okay, it's a little late. Should have done that yesterday, not today. But we actually, because um, I had a great team of investment bankers, this wasn't because of me, and because we had one rich guy that really wanted to own this company. We cut a deal with Steve Feinberg, who owned DynCorp. He owns Remington. He owned the private equity firm Cerberus. And we were going to sell it to Steve, 49% of it. So Eric was going to maintain control, mm-hmm. but he was going to get $250 million. So it's still pretty good. Mm-hmm. Still, you get to maintain control because that's his baby. He gets to keep the company. And we cut that deal with Feinberg. And then the New York Times ran an article that Feinberg was going to buy Blackwater. And at the same time, Feinberg was trying to get some bailout money. Was by now we're in 2008. The economy's melting down. Feinberg also owns Chrysler Corporation. And he's begging the government for, fi- for bailout money. And basically, the government at that point, you know, we're transitioning from Bush to Obama. Uh, and they said, you're not going to get that money from us uh, if you're buying Blackwater. Mm. So he bailed on the Blackwater deal. So for the next three years, we tried to sell Blackwater. We eventually did. Sold in two pieces, the aviation piece to AAR Corporation and then to um, the rest of it to a private equity firm run by, at that point, remember Jason Yonker, who first introduced me to Eric in 1996? A uh, private equity firm run by my buddy Jason Yonker uh, bought the rest of that. Um, and that was in 2010. So, um, so I think from here we need to get into, I mean, things get increasingly more interesting. Um, Let's at least talk a little bit about, you know, selling Blackwater, Eric Prince getting dragged in front of Congress. Um, you told us b- before the show that was kind of an inflection point, perhaps, for, for Eric Prince himself personally. Um, what happened there with with that and with uh, with Leon Panetta? Um, if you could if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, so so. You know, when I showed up at Blackwater in 2007, right after Nisor Square, Eric had a new general counselor, and her name was Mary Beth Long. Uh, Mary Beth is former uh, assistant secretary of defense and a longtime CIA case officer. Um, and Mary, Mary Beth plays into this. And the reason I bring her name up now, Mary Beth was probably a tremendous CIA case officer. She's probably a great assistant secretary um of defense she shouldn't have been the general counsel for blackwater she had no experience for doing that so when nisor square happened she was completely unprepared to help us maintain the value of that company or do anything else with it really right and that's the general counsel we're dealing with um and i still had a relationship with mary beth you know years 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 on but you know i just looked i said what are we you don't have a general counsel that can even help us now, and you're in a crisis. And Eric's going to testify in front of Congress. 
and he is getting dragged through the ringer. I mean, again, a lot of folks don't know this. They don't remember it. But when he had to stand up there in front of Henry Waxman, and he, Eric hates Democrats, uh, especially a California Democrat by the name of Henry Waxman, and he had to testify about what Blackwater did in Nisor Square and try to justify it. Eric was just beside himself. I remember years later, I was listening to uh, my uh, my iPod or my um, um, some music, and I was listening to Rage Against the Machine. Uh, and I, I don't remember the name of the song, but it's like, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Um, and Eric says, that is the music I was listening to as I was walking in to testify in front of Waxman. So that's just a little aside. So he was very angry. And when he left that hearing, it was clear that the U.S. government was no longer going to support Blackwater under his ownership. So over the next three years, he was really forced to sell Blackwater by the U.S. government because they weren't giving him any more contracts. So when you get to a company, when you're doing $700 million in sales, you can't ramp down. Right. You've built up the, this, this, um, this infrastructure to support $700 million in sales. You can't ramp down. So all of a sudden, the company's in trouble, and he's getting forced to sell the company, and he blames the U.S. government. Doesn't blame ill training for guys in Nisor Square, but he blames the U.S. government for forcing him to sell Blackwater. And he is just flat out angry about it. Okay? We have to so was, point out here also, I mean, there, there have been these allegations that Eric Prince was also working for the Central Intelligence Agency, that there were other things nestled inside Blackwater. Um, you know, yeah, you have a mobile protection and all this other stuff. But underneath that, there were other activities going on beneath the surface that the general public wasn't aware of. Well, and that's what I was going to go, Jack. With So that was him really starting to not be happy with the U.S. government, okay? When, I, when he had to go in front of Waxman, and they're forcing him to sell the company. But then the other part of this, Eric hired Kofor Black, who was the number two guy in the CIA and handled all the dirtiest stuff that the U.S. government did. And he hired him, I want to say, 2002 or 2003. And Eric got deep into the CIA. Uh, I believe, and he's told me this, and I have no reason not to believe him, that he was working for the CIA actively and that Blackwater was doing things for the CIA, uh, doing renditions, taking people to dark sites, doing all that type of stuff, right? And that was not publicly known until Leon Panetta, another Democrat, I think it was in the Obama administration, he did it, outed Eric. I bring up the Democrats because this will come in later. He outed Eric as being a CIA, working for the CIA. So now Eric has been forced to sell this company. He's fuming at Henry Waxman. Panetta just outed him for working for the CIA, and he's just furious. And P Panetta must have done that to try to get rid of him, right, to purge him out of the agency? Well, I think he was already out of the agency, but, you know, by that time, you know, now Eric, is, we've sold Blackwater, and Eric's went to the Emiratis. He's went to the UAE. And I think that's why Panetta did it. So, I mean, you know, it, it, was it because of 2007 that the government said we're no longer giving you contracts? Yes. Yeah. It, it was 100% because of Nisor Square uh, that uh, they were not awarding Blackwater any new contracts. The only contracts that Blackwater was getting awarded 
uh, in any material amount after that were some of the darker contracts that couldn't be transferred, some of the black money contracts. So at this point, Eric's furious with the United States government, probably feels betrayed um, yes. after working with the intelligence community for a long time and the, and the State Department security and elsewhere, goes over to the United Arab Emirates. Tell us about that and about your continued relationship. How did that, how did that evolve and take that next step? Yeah, so um, it must have been August of 2010. I went to Eric's house and he was heading to the UAE that day. And I said, what are you going to do over there? He goes, well, we have some plans and I'll be in contact with you in a little bit. I said, that's fine. You know, so we were still working on the final sale of Blackwater. So Eric uh, moved his entire family to Abu Dhabi uh, at that point, late 2010. Now, there was some speculation that he was doing it because the UAE didn't have an extradition agreement uh, with the U.S. And he was still at that point trying to... uh, negotiate a settlement with the U.S. government over some uh, ITAR issues, um, the, the um, uh, arms trafficking issues, as well as some sanction issues. So there's some speculation that that was the reason. But I think the real reason was that Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, MBZ, who uh, is the de facto ruler of the UAE, but at that point he was the crown prince. He's still the crown prince, but we don't even know if his brother's alive. Uh, that's another story. Um, but uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, who Eric had uh, got to know, got to know, invited Eric to come to the UAE and set up a mercenary battalion for him. Um, uh, that was supposed to be for internal security, but this is where I start getting afraid of unintended consequences, or intended but not known consequences. So uh, Mohammed bin Zayed invited Eric come to the UAE to form a mercenary battalion. And uh, he invited uh, Eric, ask a good friend of mine at the time, uh, a Navy SEAL, Harvard MBA, United States Naval Academy guy, by the name of Dean Valentine, to come over and be his chief operating officer. And um, that business started up, and my understanding is, it started up with tens of millions of dollars in cash being delivered to Eric's offices at the Goldfish Tower on the Cornetian Abu Dhabi in suitcases. And there's there's your startup money. And there they go. Jesus. And so Eric started hiring mercenaries, uh, mostly Colombian mercenaries, uh, and bringing them into uh, the UAE. And they started trading them out near El Batin Air Base out there. And... Um, Next thing what, I, I think they're what did the 600 UAE, battalion. What did the UAE want this mercenary army for? Well, you know, that's what's interesting, David, because it was always described as, well, you know, this is for internal security, almost like a palace guard, right? You know, because if you look at the UAE, there's about 800,000 Emiratis, maybe a million, but there's 15 million people that live there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are vir- virtually Slave servants. Slave labor, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Emiratis. So, you know, uh, I think Mohammed Ben Zayed was always worried about that. But a lot of those guys ended up in Yemen fighting uh, the Houthis with, um, uh, with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So started out doing one thing, maybe, I don't know, ended up doing another thing. That R2 business kind of blew up. And Jackie, you and I were talking about it before. The New York Times ran a kind of a front page article on it 
saying, you know, Eric Prince, Blackwater founder, is running a, um, uh, a mercenary camp in the Emirates. So. I mean, it's, <laughs> it sounds like something right out of a, a spy novel or something uh, that a former SEAL turned PMC leader or CEO heads over to the UAE and the royal family is bringing you suitcases filled with $100 bills uh, to start a mercenary army. Yeah, but it's true. <laughs> so, you know, uh, Clancy's stuff wasn't true. This stuff is true. And, and that happened. And he, here's, you know, my life, I'm obviously not a saint. <laughs> I, I, I'm willing to go right to the edge of just about anything. So uh, Eric invites me early 2011. He first invited my uh, good friend, Chuck Thompson, who later became our Chief Financial Officer at Frontier Services Group, great investment banker. Um, he first invited Chuck over, who had worked on the sale of Blackwater, to help him out with some issues because Eric wanted to buy a fleet of aircraft from uh, Sheikh bin Khalifa, uh, MBZ's half-brother. Um, and Eric couldn't quite figure out how to do it. And Chuck was over there for a couple weeks and he calls me, he goes, Jesus Christ, Greg, this is insane. Can you come over here? You know, at that point in 2011, I'd never been to Abu Dhabi. I'm like, yeah, sure. So I hop a flight over to Abu Dhabi, and I get there as this news is breaking on the New York Times, right? And now it's just chaos. My buddy who had originally started running that business for Eric, Dean Valentine, has left the country. And he left the country because Eric fired him. And Dean would tell me years later, Eric fired him because he wouldn't do what Eric wanted to, which is the same thing Eric would do to me five years later, the Frontier Services Group, which is, in my case, it was arming aircraft. In Dean's, in Dean's case, it was something around illegal arms. I just don't know exactly what. So Dean had left the country. Chuck and I are sitting there. You know, you read the New York Times and you're looking up. Because Eric in the New York Times is saying, I have nothing to do with Black, with um, R2, Reflex Response. It's the name of the company. And he was you know, swearing up and down, I don't have anything to do with it. And I'm like, well, I'm in the offices. You're directing all the people. The R2 CFO is over there. And then in walks, like the next day, this guy named Reno Alberto. And Reno Alberto is going to be the new president of R2. So he's come to the Golden Fish Tower where Eric's offices are to be with Eric. And he sets up his camp in there for a couple couple weeks before he moves out to Albertine. So Eric is clearly running R2. There's no question about it. And Reno Alberto is an interesting character. Um, if you read uh, The Lone Survivor or if you've talked to Marcus Luttrell, um, in his book, there's this guy he calls Instructor Reno in his buds. This is Reno Alberto. I think him and Eric were in the same buds uh, uh, class, him and Reno. So Reno shows up, and I think he'd been a stockbroker before he came over to run R2. Um, he'd been out of, the, out of the SEALs. And I'm like, oh, man, here we go again. You know, another SEAL. But this time, we have in the bank $600 million in cash mm -hmm. by that point that had come in from Mohammed bin Zayed to set up this mercenary camp. The, the former president and CEO had just left the country, been fired by Eric. The new president, Reno Alberto, is coming in. 
as far as I know, he'd been a probably a fabulous SEAL, but he'd never run a company with $600 million in cash with 600 mercenaries sitting out in the middle of the desert that are getting pissed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we were. And Chuck and I are sitting there going, so you want us to go talk to uh, Sheikh bin Khalifa about buying some aircraft? And Eric's like, yeah, go get that done. So, all right. So, was there, I mean, if he's if he's doing this under the auspice of, you know, the the person running the country, is, is I mean, is there anything illegal about this? I mean, it sounds, you know, is is there anything wrong with what is going on right now? You know, I, I don't think so. I, I I don't I don't know, but for some reason he wouldn't admit he was doing it. Right now, if if you're, he was still trying to work out that deferred prosecution agreement with the U.S. government at the time, and if you're arming a foreign mercenary full of Colombian soldiers in the UAE on behalf of Mohammed Ben Zayed, that might make your negotiations more difficult. But there's all you know the ITAR laws are also reasonably straightforward. As a U.S. citizen, you cannot provide defense services or broker defense services for a foreign government. Okay. So if you're building a palace guard, well, is that a defense service? Now, all these guys always try to just walk the line. Well, that's not, that's police. That's not defense, right? Right. Now, these same guys end up being in Yemen. Right. Fighting the Houthis. Sounds like defense. Right. But you're calling them kind of a palace guard internal security. So I think I think Eric was trying to walk a really fine line there. So right. is it illegal or not illegal? Uh, I'll leave that for the DOJ or someone else. Now, I'm just to, telling you what, to play fine. like sort of devil's advocate because I, I don't know this situation, and I mean you were there, I wasn't. Is it like is it possible that he went into this situation thinking, well, we're just going to build this sort of police force, and then started getting other directions? There started getting mission creep. Did he just, it just became the slippery slope for him? Or did you ever get the sense that it was that or that he was actively pushing for, hey, you know, let's let's get some? No, no, Eric, Eric zip lines down the slippery slope. <laughs> um, he gets down in a hurry. And I'll give you an example from a couple of years later, right? So uh, Eric went to uh, the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, to meet with Joseph Kabila. Uh, and it's probably 2014, might have been early 2015. And he went with a contingent from um, the Chinese Communist Party that set up the meeting for him. Um, and at that point, what he did is, uh, is, is, I think you probably know, the UN is a um, big peacekeeping force in the DRC. And they've had him there for years and they'll be there forever, right? And Eric went to Joseph Kabila and said, Let's replace the peacekeeping force, and we'll bring in gendarmes. You know, so we'll bring in, you know, it's, it's French. So, so we'll bring in police to re- replace the peacekeeping force. It's not what he planned. You, gendarmes, you call it, call it police, but he was going to bring in a bunch of mercenaries. He was going to bring in the guys from, like, executive outcomes mm-hmm. to go in there and replace the, um, the UN. Now, Kabila never took him up on his offer, as far as I know, but... No, so when Eric says it's going to be police or it's going to be um, oil field service security or oil pipeline overwatch, 
it means it's active kinetic military operations. Mm-hmm. And he knows that. Mm-hmm. So how did things end up going with R2? I mean, I remember reading the contract when maybe it was in the New York Times. I mean, the entire contract that was signed. It like, was. It yeah. was, Jack. Um, how, how did that end up going? You know, ha- how did that pan out, uh, that, that entire deal? Well, it, it was a little bit like Blackwater. That's why I said there's a, there's a continuum here. These things keep ending the same way, right? So Blackwater ended with, you know, the U.S. government squeezing Eric out of his own business. And by the time we sold it, he paid more in fines to the U.S. government than he received in proceeds from the sale. I mean, that'll make you mad, right? Yeah. Sure. You got 13 years of sweat and tears into a business you love. Yeah. You pay the government $45 million in fines and you yeah. take out less yourself. So he was, yeah. So same thing happened in R2. Now, I don't know all the details. I was there a lot. So I spent a lot of time in 11 and 12 in the UAE with Eric. Um so he got squeezed out again, though, because MBZ was furious that he wasn't able to keep their operation under wraps and end up front page of the New York Times. I guess, you know, and this is hearsay because I never met with Mohammed Ben Zayed. I'd met with his brother, and his brother's advisors, and I'd met with a bunch of bankers, but I'd never met with the crown prince. I'm, you know, I'm an E4 Marine. Who the hell's going to meet with me? So, um, uh, but what I was hearing through my friends in the grapevine was that Mohammed Ben Zayed was furious. And he basically said, Eric, you're out of R2. And we're going to bring R2 in-house. So it's now going to be run by Emiratis. He nationalized it. It happened. And you, Reno, Alberta, though, I want you to set up a, um aviation retrofitting business, basically arming aircraft for us. So... Eric got squeezed out. Reno ended up getting a really nice job, I think, and made a lot of money. And the reason I know, so, you know, there was, and Eric does, he compartmentalizes things. So I don't know everything that he's got going on. But, you know, at that point, um, he thought he was owed by about 30 to $50 million by the UAE. And I remember it would have been Christmas 2013. He went over to the UAE. And he wouldn't leave until they paid him. And I think they finally just threw him out. So R2 ended a little bit like Blackwater did. And and now, meanwhile, you're trying to facilitate this deal to buy aircraft. I mean, how did it pan out on your end? Well, that didn't go very well. Um, <laughs> you know, so we met with uh, SBK and his advisors. I spent a lot of time in uh, the outer offices of Sheikh bin Khalifa's with my buddy Chuck Thompson drinking shitty Turkish tea. Uh, waiting for uh, SPK's advisors to come and meet with us. Uh, eventually, we kind of worked out a deal. But when all this is happening, it, it ended up cratering the deal. You know, Reno eventually said, there's no way this can happen, Greg. Let me pay you guys a little bit of money. You guys go home. Okay. I mean, I even if what like he was doing was shady or not shady or whatever, from his perspective, I can understand why his frustration is building first with the U.S. because he's, you know, these people, you know, and then in the UAE where he's basically doing what they want him to do, but he gets out by the New York Times. Like, that's not his fault. Well, it is and it isn't. Okay. Right? So... 
was Nisar Square his fault? No, he wasn't in charge of Raven 23 on that day. Right. But as the leader of the business, you right. set the tone, you build things, right? So it's not his fault that someone went to Matthew Rosenberg and Mark Mazzetti with file cabinets full of information. That's not his fault per se. However, he lost control of guys he was supposed to be working for. They were supposed to be working for him. Right. Somebody must have been bitter or, you know, something. Or, or you did something that triggered them. Right. Right? Maybe you asked them to do something that they didn't think was legal. Right. And maybe when they balked, you fired them. And maybe when you fired them, they sent a bunch of shit to the New York Times. Right. I don't know. Right, right. right. But, but so, that could happen. But, as one does. Yeah. As one as does. One does. <laughs> but, but if you're Mohammed Ben Zayed and you're richest man in the world and you're the ruler of the UAE, that does not happen. Right, right, right. right. I mean, you end up in a prison out in the middle of the desert if you're Mohammed Ben Zayed and you do that. Right. Yeah. Can we not sink this person to the bottom of the Persian Gulf? What is problem here? I don't understand. I've got a great Persian Gulf uh, computer service story. We can go into that later, Jack. Um, Making it up. Yeah. So um, R2 falls apart on Eric. He's, He's really mad now because now... Now he's, he's mad at the New York Times. And this comes back full circle to today, though. I mean, when I say today, this week, right? So that article was written by Mark Mazzetti. And I think Matthew Rosenberg's his name that wrote the article that, um, on Eric in 2011. Mm-hmm. If you read Project Veritas, yeah. James O'Keefe, who Eric does business with, are suing both of those guys today. And there was a big story in the news earlier this week about O'Keefe, actually pictures of him stalking Mark Mazzetti at like a Starbucks in D.C. So some of this stuff never goes away. We we need to get into all of that. That kind of comes in a little bit later. Um, Definitely want to talk about that. Um, But I think you told me the next stop for Prince was South Sudan. Well, kind of. So... Um, the, the next stop was really, so it was an overlap. While he was um, running R2, he was also setting up a private equity firm called Frontier Resource Group. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hired a, uh, a really good guy, really smart guy by the name of Sean Rump to run that firm. Uh, Sean um, somehow got hooked up with a guy named John McGuire, who was a famous CIA uh, officer that was the uh, lead guy. Oh, Curtis. yeah. That name comes up again. He's in legal trouble right now. Exactly. All these names always come up, right? But, but Sean's a young guy. He's like 27 years old. He, he'd been doing oil exploration in Kurdistan, I think. Sounded like a CIA cover operation to me, but who knows? Um, and Eric hires him to start up a private equity firm and uh, Frontier Resource Group. Sean is sharp, knows what he's doing, good finance guy, has a finance background, actually worked at a bank, and he's squared away, and they start buying up some companies, okay? So, but the first thing when you start a private equity firm, with you need money. So the two investors in the private equity firm were a guy named Eric Prince, who put in 50 million, and a guy named uh, Sheikh Tanun, Tanun Ben Zayed, who's now the Minister of Defense in uh, the UAE. So the two investors in this private equity firm 
Uh, so Eric's business partner at this point in 2011 is Tanun, and they start buying companies. And the, one of the first things that Eric, he doesn't buy, but he starts trying to build an oil refinery up near Polosh, which is near the border of Sudan and South Sudan. That's when he enters South Sudan okay. in 2012, trying to do an oil refinery. Now we come back to South Sudan in 2014, after we form Frontier Services Group, and we start using Eric's oil refinery as a forward operating base for Silvacare. It gets weird. Well, for the for the president of South Sudan. Yes. Okay, so what the hell were they doing? What what were they using the oil refinery as a front for? Okay, so 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 let, let me let me just step back, kind of in the middle of this. Okay, so. We went from Blackwater, okay, Eric's working for the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. uh, things are great for 10 years. He's making a ton of money. Nisor Square happens. He winds it down over three years. He leaves the U.S. He's pissed he's no longer working for the U.S. government, okay? Goes to the UAE. R2 comes and goes and melts down for him, okay? Now we're on to Frontier Resource Group. He brings me along as a senior advisor to Frontier Resource Group. I get paid on a retainer and I'm supposed to help him find deals, right? So that's why I'm involved in Frontier Resource Group. Frontier Resource Group, we're not sure Tanu never put his money in. The oil refinery in South Sudan gets caught in the middle of a civil war. His cement uh, import operations, the DRC, goes to hell because of a leaky Portuguese boat. And so he's not making any money at Frontier Resource Group. So I'm an advisor and I say, Eric, I have some friends that have some friends in Hong Kong that may be willing to invest with you. And if anyone loves Africa, because that's where we were at that point, Frontier Resource Group was a private equity firm to invest in African minerals. I said, if anyone loves Africa, it is the Chinese. Let's get over to Hong Kong, see if we can raise some money. So Eric and I, another Navy SEAL by the name of Chris Burgess, Sean Rump, good friend of mine by the name of Eric Weinberg, we get on a plane, we go to Hong Kong. We meet a guy by the name of Johnson Ko, who's a Hong Kong billionaire, and some investment bankers, and they have $110 million in a shell company. And they want Eric to form Blackwater 2 on behalf of the Chinese. We actually go visit with CIDIC at this point, which is the Chinese state-owned enterprise. It's, it's basically the Chinese sovereign fund. And they want Eric to start Blackwater 2. And me and the investment lead investment banker guy named Brett McConaughey, we're adamant. No, we can't do that. But what we'd like to do is we'd like to start up a logistics business to serve Africa, and we can help the Chinese who have hundreds of thousands of employees move around Africa safely. And they finally agree on that. We form Frontier Services Group. We do a reverse merger, it gets all details, but basically we form Frontier Services Group, which is a Hong Kong public company with all everything that goes along with being a public company. They're, they're pretty buttoned down in Hong Kong. 20% owners, CIDIC. 20% Eric Prince, 20% the Hong Kong billionaire, and the rest is individual investors. And we put it, we have $110 million of cash to spend. Okay. 
So we got that done in late October, and I come, I become the CEO of the company. So that's October of 2013. So Eric has this refinery in the South Sudan. Civil war breaks out between Riyadh Mashir and Sovakir's forces in South Sudan about the same time we're forming this company, okay? Eric's refinery business is done. $10 million investment, it's gone. Eric disappears into Juba, early part of 2014, for about nine days. So if you've ever been to Juba, nine days is a long time to be in Juba. Um, and he comes back out with a contract, our first contract for Frontier Services Group. It's about a $100 million contract. And it's basically to provide logistics, at least I think it is, for the uh, Sudanese uh, Ministry of Petroleum and to make sure all of their uh, refinery, not the refineries, but the, the, their oil um, um, wells uh, continue running, the pipelines continue flowing. So he comes back with that contract and uh, off we go. Uh, when I say off we go, the next thing I know, I've got about 100 employees, most of them former executive outcomes guys, if you want me to go to executive outcomes, I will. A yeah, bit. we've had we've had even Barlow on the show before. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah I, I know. Yeah, so Eric Evan. Eric worships even Barlow. Really? Um, oh my God! Yeah. So uh, the executive outcomes guys, uh, I've already been. I, they're they're very well known to me by that point because Eric had just finished up and I skipped it. I mean, to be, to be clear, I mean, executive outcomes is long defunct by this point, but you're saying former executive outcomes, um, people's, uh, South African nationals are getting involved. Senior former guys, Chris Grove, uh -huh. who was the executive, Chris was the executive officer for Eben. And, uh, we didn't hire LaFrost, but LaFrost, uh, Luting, uh, what was around us at that point as well. So, so these, was, uh, uh, was Lafras involved? Was who? Lafras? Yeah, LaFrost. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, I'm sorry, LaFrost was involved in Somalia. He yes. was not involved in South Sudan. But I would see LaFrost around a lot. Okay, so you brought a lot of these, a lot of these individuals into the fold. Oh, no, no, they all come into the fold. And we rush about 50 of them up into uh, South Sudan. Uh -huh. And I'm like, well, well, they're, they're African. They're African, but they're also Africans. They understand the continent. They understand how to work and move things around. That kind of makes sense. But next thing I know, we've got them up at this um, up at Peloche, which was Eric's um, refinery up there. And uh, the South Sudanese Army is now using it for a forward operating base. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And th that just led to more of our problems with aircraft and, and other things. But so, so Eric was trying to bail out his refinery operation, I think, by moving some of our folks up there and trying to, if you will, charge us rent for that, that property. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, how did things pan out in Somalia? That, that, was, well, an that was an anti-piracy contract, right? It, w it was, and uh, it was mostly funded by the UAE. There's actually a documentary done on it by uh, Adam Shulowski and Sean Efren called, um, I forget what it was called, but it was a documentary. So uh, I, I'd say it didn't turn out too well. Um, 
the pirates stopped, but not because of what they did. Uh, they had some, you know, one of the former executive outcomes, Sergeant Majors, was shot. Um, they had a riot. Guys didn't get paid. And, you know, kind of ended in the same shit show. Uh, a bunch of former uh, South Afri- African Armed Forces guys got stuck in the middle of the desert out there. Yeah, uh, Rolf von Heerden was out there, I believe, as well. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is like one of the wildest episodes we've ever done. Well, no, and you were there, you Greg. Know, I poly- I this is amazing. To you guys, but and anyone else that's listening in, this, it's it's a little bit hard to follow. I'm trying to keep it chronological. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I went from FRG to Frontier Services Group. But I forgot the Somalia thing, mm-hmm. which was important because that was going on too. But you know, now we're at Frontier Services Group, and we're supposed to be a logistics company. And our first big operation isn't really logistics. We had rushed, like I said, 50, 100 guys into South Sudan. I don't even know what they're doing. So at this point, I had just hired a guy named Pete Phillips. So Pete's important to your guys' community, the special operations community. Pete was former deputy JSOC. He was a gold squadron SEAL, uh, SEAL Team 6 commander, 14 years in the SEAL Team 6. You know, he worked directly for McRaven and McChrystal. And he's one of the most squared away dudes I've ever met, especially in terms of planning, right? So him and Eric had spent, they had had a cup of coffee together at SEAL Team 8 back in the late 90s. And we were looking for a chief operating officer. You know, Pete's a captain, 25 years. He's just getting out of the uh, SEAL teams. And we hire him to be our chief operating officer. So I send uh, my, my, he's one of my dearest friends now. I send my buddy Pete to Kenya. And uh, we've got a couple couple team houses in uh, Karen, right outside of Nairobi. And I said, Pete, can you figure out what the hell is going on up in the South Sudan? <laughs> so. So I send Pete up there and, you know, he basically comes back. He goes, well, whatever Eric told you we're doing isn't what we're doing, Greg. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I just had. So if you're familiar with the South Sudan, the Silver Cares tribe, they're the Dinkas. They are the largest human beings on the face of the earth. Um, they're all six, five and above. Pete Phillips is six foot five. So Pete comes back to me and goes, Greg, I just walked out of a meeting where I was the smallest guy in the meeting with five South Sudanese generals, and they wanted to take me out back and kill me. And I said, and I said to him, and this, I, this is what the Pete conveyed to me, and I believe it to be true. He said, look, you can either take me out back right now and kill me, which is fine, or you can pay me, but you've got to do one or the other because they weren't paying us the money they owed us. I'm like, okay, Pete. Well, that was you and not me. So uh, he said, I said, Pete, why aren't they paying us? He goes, because of the task orders that Eric showed you, the 17 task orders, are not the only things we promised them. We promised them armed aircraft and military support. I said, well, that's fantastic, Pete. We don't have any armed planes. He goes, well, kind (laughs) of. I said, all right. He goes, well, you know, we could put... You know, these gazelles could be armed. I said, well, they're not, right? He goes, no, they're not. Not right now. I said, okay, well, that's good to hear, Pete. Um, and eventually, we wouldn't do what the South Sudanese generals wanted us to. They were furious. They quit paying us. I got 50 pissed off 
Afrikaners uh, stuck in the country uh, because they have nothing to do. You know, they're, they're, they were sent there for reason X and we can't do it anymore. But according to um, Pete's understanding for the generals, Eric had promised kinetic operations from Frontier Services Group. We refused to give them to them. They kicked us out of the country. So we're kicked out of another country. Wow. Interesting enough, um, Matthew Cole from our last show wrote about this in 2016, where he wrote about the the aircraft that trying to I arm, remember when all this came out. Yeah, arm in the Austria. crop dusters uh, and, and sell them to the government. It's fascinating. Well, and this, is, this is when I stopped on my Twitter feed the other day and I reached out to Jack and I said, Jack, I got too much to say. Can you give me a hand? And that's where we get to these crop dusters, right? So yeah. now, now we're out of now we're out of South Sudan. Okay. Yeah. We had a huge contract there. We never really got paid. I we had a bunch of South African mercenaries just hanging around with nothing to do. We bought a bunch of aircraft we were never able to deploy. And Eric comes to me at the beginning of two thousand. So now we're in two thousand and fifteen, early part of two thousand and fifteen. Mm-hmm. He says, Greg, I have a great opportunity for us. You know, so I sit down. Uh, so let's hear it. He goes, well, we have an opportunity to partner with a guy named Dmitry Strasinski, who I didn't know, never heard of him, in Azerbaijan. And they want a ground mercenary battalion with aviation assets. I said, all right. That sounds interesting. Um, and what do they want these folks to do? Well, they want them all armed. They want the ground personnel armed and they want the aviation assets armed. And I said, well, Eric, I don't think we can do that. <laughs> not, at, not at our company. And uh, he got really, really bad at that point. Uh, and he'd been mad at me before because I'd said no before, but now he's furious at me because I'm saying we cannot do that. Um, he actually went to his attorneys at Steptoe Johnson um, and had them write a memo saying, well, you guys can actually do pipeline overwatch, wink, wink, up there with aviation assets and uh, those personnel, but you couldn't do basically uh, you know, offensive military operations. I'm like, well, yeah, but we're just then calling a pig something else. Um, and so I eventually told Eric, there's no way we're going to do it. If you're going to do it, you have to do it on your own outside of Frontier Services Group. So he goes, okay, I need two guys then. I said, well, if you need the two guys, take them out of the company. Uh, and he wanted Serge Durant, who uh, is a former uh, Royal Australian Air Force fighter pilot and who was the head of our special aviation division. And he wanted Chris Grove, the executive outcomes, former executive officer, to do all the planning for him. I said, if you're going to do that, just take him out, second him out of the company. They can't be part of the company. We can't pay him while well, they're setting this up. Okay. So, by, by, so at this point, my relationship with Eric is pretty much gone. I've said no too many times. We said no in South Sudan. We weren't going to do that. And now we're saying no again in Azerbaijan. Um, and then the story gets really, really strange and, and it really all falls apart. And it, it resulted in me, Admiral Fallon, Pete Phillips, and most of the other Americans leaving Frontier Services Group. 
And, and the reason for that was these crop dusters that you had mentioned, David. So um, we had made a proposal. God damn. Uh, we did some weird shit. Uh, we'd made a proposal back in 2000 and early part of, no, early part of 2014 to the Ministry of Defense in Mali. Um, either of you guys run into a guy named Tim Lawrence, former 10th group guy? So what's his last name? Lawrence. I don't think so, no. Okay. So uh, Tim had set Eric up with, uh, I think, the MOD in Mali. And they wanted basically the same thing he gave to R2, the same thing he promised to give to Silvercare, the same thing they wanted in Azerbaijan. They wanted, but they mostly wanted the aviation assets. The ground stuff they didn't want as much, but they wanted some aviation assets, including a light attack aircraft. Uh, and we said, no, but we can give you an ISR aircraft. So we ordered from the United States two 510G Thrush aircraft. Um, and we sent them to this company called Airborne Technologies in Austria to be outfitted with ISR equipment. Now, a little side note, Eric owns at least 25% of Airborne Technologies. Mm -hmm. So I think he actually owns more, but he owns 25% for sure. It felt like he controlled the company. So we sent these two 510G aircraft, uh, thrush aircraft crop dusters, to be outfitted with ISR equipment in Austria. And then they were supposed to be sent to Mali, but we never got that contract. And then they were supposed to be sent to the South Sudan. Uh, and one of them eventually ended up down there. But then Eric wants to use them in Azerbaijan, right? So they're, they, they're owned by Frontier Services Group. These aircraft are. And uh, Eric is doing this deal with Dmitry Straczynski away from Frontier Services Group. He's doing it on his own, kind of a side deal. Uh, he's going to get paid a ton of money. And he says, well, I want to take these 510, you know, our thrush aircraft up to Azerbaijan. And I said, fine, we're not using them anyways. We'll, we'll sell them. We'll, you know, we'll lease them. You know, how do you want them? Just take them. Um, because we've spent a lot of money on them. And uh, he brought in a guy by the name of Roy Shaposhnik to uh, be the chief operating officer up there in Azerbaijan for him. And I had known Roy. Again, these circles are all, you know, it's, it's all the same people all the time. In Roy's former IDF, um, a lot of folks say he's Mossad. If you Google him, you'll see he was involved in the recent Jordanian coup attempt, um, actually trying to get the princess out of Jordan, not in a bad way. And uh, so Eric says, well, call Roy and ask him, um, you know, how he wants to deliver the aircraft and everything. that. And uh, I said, great. And so Roy sends me a contract. Not for two ISR aircraft. He sends me a contract, I think, for like eight light attack aircraft. And I'm like, Roy, we don't own any light attack aircraft. He goes, oh, yes, you do, Greg. So oh, these wow. aircraft that we'd sent to Austria for ISR had been retrofitted into light attack aircraft. Um, I believe at the direction of Eric and Serge Durant, um, our, our Royal Australian Air Force guy. And there's emails and there's lawsuits and there's all kinds of stuff going on. And I'm like, well, Roy, we can't, even if I did have light attack aircraft, I couldn't sell them to you. So, you know, at this point I got, you know, Admiral Fallon on the other line saying, hey, Admiral, I think we got a big problem. Uh, you know, those ISR aircraft you thought you had, we've got at least two light attack aircraft now. And they're sitting in, one's in Austria, 
and one had ended up in um, Uganda. <laughs> Long story, but we won't go into that, right? And uh, these aircraft, um, Eric wants to sell them to Dimitri for his project in Baku. And, you know, so then, you know, we speed dial Higgins Spalding, the law firm next and say, you know, what do we have here? What are the ITAR implications? Can we even do this? And, you know, so we start a big investigation in late 2015 into these aircraft. And ultimately what we decide is uh, we send investigators to look at them. Uh, the folks at Airborne Technologies tried to keep us from looking at the aircraft to inspect them. Uh, to see exactly what we had. They were trying to keep them away from us. From your aircraft. Uh, they initiated a lawsuit against this company owned by Eric Prince by the company that I was CEO of and he was chairman of, <laughs> right? And I think he did lose his mind on that one. So uh, I initiated a lawsuit because they wouldn't give us our equipment. And Eric finally told me I had to uh, uh, dismiss the lawsuit, which which we did. But, you know, by then... Um, We'd already sent investigators up there. We'd got to look at the aircraft. The investigative report we got back was, yeah, those are light attack aircraft. They have all the hard points. They have the pylons. They actually have switches and buttons for guns and missiles. They're light attack aircraft. There's no armament on them right now, but they're light attack aircraft. Um, and in or if Eric tries to sell them the way he's trying to sell them, he'll be creating an ITAR violation for himself. Mm -hmm. Greg, what, what possessed them to or, um, convert these aircraft in Austria and Western Europe rather than bring them into countries, say Uganda, Sudan, wherever, and, and have the technicians come in and make those modifications there? Very, very difficult modification. Um, it, it's hard because you're putting so much more weight into the aircraft. Mm -hmm. They're hard to fly. I remember, so Admiral Fallon, who uh, uh, is a pilot, he's done 1,300 carrier arrests. I mean, so, so the Admiral's looking at these specs on this. He goes, I wouldn't try to fly that. Um, so it was a very, you know, the guys at Airborne Technologies are, are good at what they do. Um, now, they say they didn't mod remodify those to be light attack aircraft. They blame this fictional, as far as I could tell, Bulgarian company called Laza. They said, well, we sent the aircraft to Laza and they did it at Laza, but we couldn't find a Laza factory. We couldn't find a Laza employee. So we believe they just kind of said, well, Laza did it, but we don't think the aircraft ever left, left Austria. So the reason he did it in Austria, or the reason it was done in Austria is because you really needed good engineers to do it. Interesting. Um, where does where did how did Libya factor into all of this? Because that was another stopping point in this whole story, isn't it? Well, yeah, it, Libya factors in a, in, a, in a couple of different ways. So well, let me just finish up with these aircraft sure. real quick. Um, so in, in um, throughout 2015, I had hired the law firm Kagan Spalding, another law firm called Holland and Hart, and we hired some of the best lawyers in the country. Uh, Rob Her, who uh, went on to be the um, U.S. Attorney for Maryland under Trump, Gary Grendler, who was the number two person in the DOJ under Obama, were our lead investigators. We had them take every email, everything off our servers, interview every employee of the company and everyone they could. And they came back to me and said, Greg, you can't do anything with those aircraft. We think you may have already committed ITAR violations. 
and you need to voluntarily self-disclose those ITAR violations to the Department of State, which I did. And we had other violations to the Department of Commerce, and I disclosed those as well. Um, and we also disclosed that because Eric tried to sell those, those aircraft, he may have had personal ITAR violations, right? So we disclosed all that to the Department of State, Department of Defense. We actually went over and talked to John Carlin at the DOJ and advised them on all this. And um, we had a board meeting in March of 2016 where I laid all this out for the board. And I said, you know, I was getting ready to say, look, either Eric goes or I go, right? This is has been CEO for slightly under three years. And before I could do that, first Eric gets up and he basically for two hours just tells the board what an awful human being I am, <laughs> that I'm just jealous and I'm trying to steal the company from him. I said, that very well may be Eric, but either you go or I go, I really don't care, right? So we're about ready to have a vote on that matter. And I think I got two votes for Eric leaving, me and Admiral Thotman, right? The other board members are Chinese Communist Party members, Hong Kong businessman, the former Nigerian um, Civil Aviation uh, Commission uh, chairman. And I think Eric's already negotiated with them and, you know, has kind of their votes. But before we can have the vote, the two Chinese Communist Party members on our board, they say, can we say something first? I'm like, yeah. One of them's the vice chairman. I say, say whatever you want. You know, I've been, been in this conference room for two days. I'm frustrated. I'm tired. Uh, so they stand up next to Eric and they say, Greg, we heard everything you have to say. We appreciate all your efforts with the company. However, going forward, Frontier Services Group, it is Eric Prince. So, okay. So clearly I'm out at that point. It is CIDIC, which is the Chinese sovereign fund. Mm -hmm. It is going to work with Belt and Road and it's gonna provide security for Belt and Road. We weren't a security company at that point. So, I mean, it was literally one of those moments that take your breath away. Uh, I, did, I just remember looking at the Admiral Fallon, and then I looked at these two you know, Chinese Communist Party members and I said, well, obviously I resign. And Admiral Fallon looks at me and he says, well, I'm resigning with Greg. Um, so we, we announced our resignations that day, took, between a week and a month to take care of the paperwork. Pete Phillips left the company. Chuck Thompson left the company. Adam Zerlowski left the company. So all the Americans basically left the company except for three people. The only Greg, Americans that stayed with the company. Go ahead, Jack. I just had something to interject there that I, I well, first off, I wanted to point out for people who are listening, maybe don't understand, like, China has ostensibly a type of capitalism. They have private companies, but any of the bigger companies have Chinese Communist Party members embedded in them, just as Greg is describing here, um, that have an oversight and, and represent the party's wishes in the company. I mean, ultimately, that company is going to be subordinate to the People's Republic of China. And that what that brings me to is my question, Greg. I want to ask you about Eric. Um, this is a guy who, as you said, he hates Democrats, how does he feel about working with the Chinese Communist Party? I have a hard time squaring that circle. Well, I, I do too, and it's this. So obviously, when I was the CEO, we were working with the Chinese Communist Party too. However, we were providing 
third-party independent logistics around Africa. Mm-hmm. I had, we'd never we'd done one job for the Chinese since I'd been there, and that was repatriating some bodies from. Um, there was a terrorist attack in Bamako, and four Chinese nationals got killed, and we transported their bodies back for them. It was the only job we ever did for the Chinese. So we took their money. They sat on our board, but we didn't do anything for them. So, you know, obviously, I said earlier, I'm the sucker in the room. Um, so we knew we were working with the Chinese Communist Party. But but this is a game changer because we went from third-party logistics right. to now we're going to provide yeah, security yeah. services. In China. For Belt and Road. Right. I'm right. like, holy shit. So, right. like I said, all the Americans walked away. So we, we had Admiral Fallon, obviously a four-star former CENTCOM, Pete Phillips, former deputy JSOC, John Dolan, former senior guy, SIGINT. Uh, we had three or four other military guys. We had some former CIA guys. We just all got up and walked away. Okay? Ten and people stayed. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, and Belt and Road is arguably – like uh, the overall umbrella for part of the paramilitary operations going on against the Uyghurs, right? Or, or at least su- supporting that in certain ways. Well, well I mean, Belt Road is more overarching than that. It is the Chinese strategy to project across the globe. So it's even it's more than that, David. Okay. So yeah, it's a know, way to I mean, go around American naval supremacy at the, at the end of the day. He, yeah, no, absolutely. So, so you know, certainly they're in Xinjiang where the Uyghurs are. Right. However, that is to project Chinese power. I mean, it's it's it, it's 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 crazy. Yeah. Um, that an American would stay involved. So Eric stayed, obviously as chairman. Um, guy named Dave Whittingham stayed. He was Eric's primary interpreter, but he became much more involved later on. And then, you know, much to my chagrin, a guy named Rick Peregrino stayed. And Rick was in charge of training. Um, Rick's a former recon marine. Um, and, you know, he stayed on as their chief security officer. Um, and I think he may even still be there. So basically, from March of 2016 till today. So when I left, we did not have any security services of Frontier Services Group. Zero. Today, that company has 35,000 security guards deployed across the world, including, which really breaks my heart, in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. uh, where you know that population is completely repressed now. Mm-hmm. So Frontier Services Group, where Eric was the chairman, set up that Blackwater 2 that I talked about earlier but I said, we can't do. And there's some, been some articles written about it. And I don't know exactly what is going on and who's armed and who's not. And I don't want to try to split the hairs between police services and defense services. So I don't know if it's legal or not legal for Eric to be doing that. That's for someone else to decide. What I do know is that no American should have been doing that. That's what I do know. You you said earlier, Greg, that you felt from your point of view that some of the guys who were forced out of the company, uh, out of the UAE, and then when you were forced out, that Prince was trying to use you guys as a cover for other things he was trying to do behind the scenes. Well, absolutely. So, you know, if you really think, you know, so I'm with um, Eric right before this board meeting. 
And I'm in our CFO's office in Hong Kong, 39th floor of Far East Financial Center, um, overlooking the, uh, the Chinese Army barracks. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, and we're getting ready to go to the board meeting. And I said, Eric, some of the stuff you've been doing, I think, is illegal. And he looks at me, just looks me dead in the eye and says, well, if I've committed any crimes, so have you. And I just said, fuck you, we'll find out. And literally, except for me saying, shaking his hand at the end of the board meeting when I resigned, those are about the last two words I said to him. Uh, so, yeah, he, he won. You know, the reason I agreed to become CEO of Frontier Services Group, because it was a Hong Kong public company. And all my friends, my family, everyone said, you can't go into business with Eric. He's going to fuck you over. And I'm like, no, no, it's a, it's a public company. We have to be above board. We can't do any of this weird shit. And I think Eric thought, well, this is the perfect cover to do all this weird shit, right? A public company. Um, I mean, you know, Greg Smith, he was a partner at Deloitte. He was a, uh, you know, he, he was a senior guy on Wall Street. Admiral Fallon, Pete Phillips. Oh, man, if I, I just get in their slipstream. No one's ever going to see me. Right, right. And that's the way I felt when I left. Now, whether that was Eric's intention to use us for cover, but then I look at my friend, Dean Valentine, who I said at R2, went to start it. Mm -hmm. You know, Dean's a USNA guy. He was an investment banker, Harvard Business School graduate, serious guy, great family guy. You know, he's not the kind of guy that gets involved in shady shit. I think Eric wanted to get in his slipstream mm -hmm. uh, as well. So, uh, you know, it happened at least those two occasions, but, but there's others. Um, you know, we had businesses all, all over Africa and uh, uh, behind every legitimate business we had, I, there was always some dark shit going on. I mean, what was this dark shit going on? I mean, you found out about the airplanes uh, being armed. I mean, did you ever get an inkling of what else was happening there? Well, I mean, you, you talked about uh, Libya, Jack. You'd uh -huh. ask about Libya. So, so let me segue there. Sure. We bought a company called Malith Arrow, uh, which is um, headquartered in Malta. And this company is basically a, a charter aircraft business run by a guy named Mick O'Brien, a, a Brit, a uh, really smart guy, really knows the aviation business. And basically what, what Mick does, he charters out aircraft and, uh, you know, he flies them wherever people want to fly. A lot of it's in Europe. I mean, for instance, you know, he had a 737 that was flying around Paris Saint-Germain, uh, football club. Um, but we also did a lot of flights, or Mick used to, in and around North Africa. Um, so Eric sent um, former SEAL and a former CIA guy into Malta. And next thing I know, we've got charter aircraft running in and out of Libya. So this is in 2015. Now, before that, I had flown into Tripoli with Eric in 2013, so I knew he had business interests there. Um, and then um, he had told me uh, that he'd met with Haftar at one point. Uh, and I want to say that was probably late 2014, early 2015. So Mick O'Brien, who owns, who is part owner of Balloth, we own the other part, calls me one day and says, Greg, you have to come and get these guys. I'm like, well, why do I have to come and get these guys? He goes, it's insane what we're doing. I said, what are we doing, Mick? He goes, we're running chartered aircraft in and out of Libya. I mean, the civil war is raging at that point, right? 
and I and Haftar is moving from uh, east to west, and uh, the Emiratis are helping him. And you know, there's all kinds of weird shit going on. And he goes, "I think we're moving Haftar. Uh, you guys won't give me a manifest. And I think we're moving um, arms into not Libya." I'm like, "Come on, Nick." So I went uh, down to the airport. You know, I, I flew into Malta. I met with uh, the guys. I thought I was going to have a fist fight in the middle of the airport with Ken Vieira. He, he would whip my ass because, you know, he's a SEAL. Um, uh, and I said, Ken, what the fuck are you doing? He goes, I'm just doing what I'm told. Oh, I'm like, boy. I've told you not to do that anymore. He goes, well, but Eric told me to do it. I'm like, God damn it. So uh, we were moving air, We were moving uh, a lot of chartered flights in and out of Libya during 2015. And then after I'd left, after I retired, became a ranch hand, um, I started reading reports about this company called Lancaster Six mm. that had went into Libya. Something fucked up. They had to come back on rib boats, <laughs> back to Malta on rib boats, which, you know, it's a 100-mile trip through some pretty rough seas on a rib boat, 18 guys. And the guys involved were Serge Durant, my old special aviation division guy, uh, the chief pilot for one of Eric's other companies, Bridgeport, uh, a guy named Travis Mackey, they were involved in this. I'm like, holy shit. Did he just run more mercenaries or more aviation assets into Libya? So this was 2019, I think, that it went on. And then a lot of that was outlined in that UN report. Um, I remember this. Where, where yeah. I, think they, I think they accused Eric of violating UN sanctions. What have I missed? Ah, are we out of time? No, no, no we're not out of time. I'm just trying to process all of this insanity. Um, I mean, yeah, it's all of this is pretty incredible stuff. And I mean, it, it also speaks to, I think, like a, a type of obsession um, for what you're telling me with, with recreating some sort of mercenary army. I mean, he's trying this all over the world everywhere he goes. It's like, hey, man, like maybe... You know, buy yourself a nice little cottage out in Cape Cod. Write write a novel. Take some well, sign up no. sign up for some boxing classes. Go to two, no, skip no, the rest. No, he, he he used to do BJJ at the, the villas. Um, you know, it's it's kind of funny. I once asked him. I said, "Dude, you don't have any hobbies." I think I was coaching Pop Warner football at the time. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have any freaking hobbies. And even his wife would say to me, he doesn't have any hobbies. And he would say, Greg, my hobby is counterinsurgencies. I'm like, oh, boy, that's going to give you a short list of friends. Um, right. So from the time he left the U.S., remember I said earlier he really worshipped even Barlow? Mm -hmm. He wanted to be executive outcomes. Yeah. I mean, look at the – in Sierra Leone, in Angola, the air assets, the ground assets – the way the the way those guys from the old CCP went at or CCB went after it with the rough and the other guys the RUF and the other guys right um, he wanted to recreate that and he's been trying desperately so even the reports and again I'm not part of this anymore last time I saw the dude was at the end of 2000 March 2016 but I've read reports from reliable sources he offered basically the same thing in Ukraine he offered the same thing in Afghanistan. You know, since then, mm -hmm. um, there were reports of a private CIA he was trying to set up. So there are so many uh, 
talking to some of my friends. And actually, you know, on so Pete Phillips, uh, uh, Captain Phillips, would say, when you leave the military, you remain at that rank forever. I said, well, Pete, I'm going to be a corporal forever. He goes, no, you're different. You're, you're, you're too fucked up to still be a corporal. But he goes, in general, Greg, when you leave the military, if you leave the military as a Lieutenant JG SEAL team guy, your mind never gets past that, right? So Eric left it, I think, wanting to be executive outcomes. Mm-hmm. And he stayed that way for 20 years. And I can only base it on the evidence I've seen in front of my own eyes. He has tried what my friend Robert Young Pelt calls an army in a box. Mm-hmm. What, 10 times? You know, I, 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 Libya, Mali, South Sudan, Azerbaijan, Ukraine, Afghanistan, um, DRC. I mean, that's seven off the top of my head. Yeah, when you, when you zoom out the same thing. you really see that pattern. Um, did, did he ever want to be the guy on the ground or did he always want to be sort of the, you know, the, the, the overseer of all this? But yeah, I don't know. Was, you know, Eric never deployed. Um, and, you know, I'm not a shrink. So I don't know what drives people. Yeah. Um, Greg, you said that uh, you wanted to, one of the reasons why you wanted to talk was because you're seeing some of these methodologies, some of these templates that you saw developed um, with, during your time with these companies being brought back to the United States. Um, there, yes. there is that there's some reporting in the past about Eric Prince working with Project Veritas and trying to set them up as a domestic intelligence service. I don't know. I can't remember the exact verbiage that was being used. Um, could you talk to us about this, these developments and, again, what it is that you're seeing coming back home domestically that you find concerning? Yeah. So in 2016, when I left, uh, I was obligated to do a couple things, including meeting with attorneys for Frontier Services Group. But I finished up my work with them in, say, May 2016. And then I largely disappeared for two years. Uh, a lot of my friends couldn't even find me, which I found fantastic. Um, but as I'm sitting out there, I started seeing some stuff from Eric. And the first time I saw him pop back on the public radar screen was on November 4th, 2016, right before the election, when he went on Breitbart and said, you know, um, Wiener and Huma Abedin are about to flip and Hillary's going to get arrested. And he heard it from the folks at one police plaza in New York City. I'm like, well, I was with Eric up to six months ago. He had no relationship with those guys. I'm like, well, that was kind of weird. But then Rudy came out with the same thing. I'm like, what the hell's going on? Um, And then I saw him and his wife in pictures at Trump's private party uh, the night of the election. So there are only like 50 of them there. I'm like, okay, so he's, he's, he got with Trump and he's a Trump supporter, I get that. Not surprising, he was a Rand Paul advisor earlier in the election. Um, but you know, the, the fact, he, was, he, would, he would have done anything for Hillary not to be elected, so I got that. So I, I'm still like, okay, I'm still letting that go, nothing there. And then uh, I saw reports that he'd went to the Seychelles. And I'm like, yeah, it's actually not that weird for Eric to be in the Seychelles with Mohammed Ben Zayed. It really wouldn't have been for us, right? We're like, fuck, he's in the Seychelles with NBC. Um, however, 
it was him meeting with uh, that Russian um, in some of the conversations you wrote about later in the Mueller report that I thought, wow, that's, that's a little bit weird. So I called my buddy Chuck Thompson, who had still had been the CFO at Frontier Services Group. And I said, what the hell was Eric doing there? He goes, Greg, it's worse than that. We paid for that flight. <laughs> I'm like, so he went and met for Trump on your dime. He goes, yeah. I think he eventually paid the money back to the company. Um, so, so that's still not bothering me. What bothered me is I think it was in 2018. There's a uh, open source reporter by the name of Wendy Siegelman. Uh, Wendy does some of the best open source research I've ever seen. And I was just scanning something I saw one day. And she said, well, the assets of Cambridge Analytica have been sold to a company by the name of Emmerdata. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And the Emmerdata directors include a guy by the name of Johnson Coe. So Johnson Coe is the Chinese billionaire that we talked about board, earlier uh, on the board of Frontier Services Group. And all of a sudden, he ends up partnering with Rebecca Mercer and they buy the assets of Cambridge Analytica. I'm like, well, that's impossible. But then I did a little bit more reading in Steve Bannon's first trip after he left the White House, was to a CIDIC conference in Hong Kong. I'm like, well, that's, that's, that's not a coincidence. So I'm like, oh my God, Eric had Johnson Co. buy the, the, the Cambridge Analytica assets. And I'm like, well, that in itself, there's nothing illegal there. It's just sketchy. You're working with the Chinese to bury Cambridge Analytica. It's just sketchy, okay? And then I kind of worked a little bit backwards and the, the meeting that really bothered me, the one that said he's bringing it to America is this. Uh, there is a former CIA officer by the name of Joe Assad. His wife's also in the CIA. Her name's Michelle Assad. Yeah. I'll name them because they, because they wrote a book. Yeah. So I've heard name Joe and Michelle. So I used to, um, uh, Joe, Joe worked for Eric. So did Michelle. And I used to sit across from Joe uh, at a desk in Eric's second villa in um in abu dhabi and joe used to be working on psyops types of things against the iranians mm -hmm. targeted psyops campaigns and he i don't know if they ever deployed him or not or if it's just an idea but i'm like holy shit when i read that eric and a guy named joe samuel from the psy group and george nader the pedophile met with don jr in August of 2016, to talk about targeted uh, micro uh, psychological operations types of things. I'm like, holy shit, that's the stuff that we were doing overseas that I thought was going to be targeted for Iranians, you know, to start a revolution against the Ayatollah. I didn't think that was coming home to America. I'm like, holy shit, that came home to America. Um, and then the second thing that bothered me a little bit is on December 23rd, 2020. So about a month and a half after the election, and you started hearing all the chatter about what was gonna happen on January 6th, I got a call from the FBI. And uh, the FBI agent who had talked to me before, she says, is there anyone in your old network involved in any of these Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, Proud Boys? And I said, you know, truthfully, I do not have any actual knowledge of that. However, if you go to the Blackwater Worldwide website, 
you'll notice that they have been trying to gin up those types of folks through, you know, selling, you know, it's just a subtle type of marketing, but it was selling like um, Portland or bus summer of love t-shirts, you know, trying to entice some of these LARPers as I'll call them, you know, to, to kind of head up into Portland. I said, I haven't seen it per se, but it looks like there's something going on, on the Blackwater worldwide website that you might want to take a look at. I mean, it sounds like you have some pretty interesting circumstantial evidence. And I mean, it definitely piques my curiosity to say the least, but I mean, that, this is like almost like some Serpico shit at this point. Uh, and not to say it's not true, but I mean, this is pretty crazy, <laughs> pretty beyond the pale if it's true. Well, you know, but, but I guess what's, what's true and what am I saying? I, I, I'm saying that the FBI was concerned enough, whatever they were hearing, that right. they called me to find out about my old colleagues, okay? So, in the, like I said, the only thing I could point towards was some internet traffic that, that, I, that I'd seen. But the other stuff with Cambridge Analytica, well, well that's, that's a fact that those, those assets were sold to Emmerdata and Johnson Cole was a director with Rebecca Mercer. And how the hell did Johnson Cole ever get introduced to Rebecca Mercer? Can anyone name one person they have in common? Um, so, you know, it was just, you know, when I look at that, I'm like, oh, well, what's next then? You know, what's coming to America next? And I really don't want to know. So when people say, well, do you have a vendetta against Eric? I said, no, no, I don't. I just want him to stop. Stop trying to sell your army in a box to ruthless fucking dictators. Just stop all the nonsense. Like you said, go get a hobby, go get a cabin, go fishing. What, what about this this article that came out where he was, I, I'm sorry, it was a long time since I read it, where he was taking, bringing the Project Veritas people like onto his ranch and giving them paramilitary training and all this kind of weird stuff. Well, I, I think that happened because there were pictures of uh, O'Keefe and some of the guys from Veritas at his ranch. Uh, and I think O'Keefe posted it on his Instagram. So clearly that happened i don't know any more about it th than that you know i i don't know those guys those guys kind of post-dated me mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. in, in in terms of everything you know what, what i will say what i do know um there is an investigation into those aircraft at frontier services group those thrush aircraft that's an active investigation i um I received a subpoena on October 15th to appear in federal district court on November 2nd or produce documents in lieu of that, which I did. So in the last four months, five months now, November 2nd. So on November 2nd, I know there was a grand jury looking into it. I don't know what's happened since then. I can't say for sure Eric Prince was the target of that because my subpoena simply said, produce these documents for a criminal investigation, which I did. I, where do you think this, um, I mean, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but where do you see this ending, Greg, for, for Mr. Prince? I mean, in a way, I mean, I don't want to say I, I feel like sorry for him or something like that, but it seems like he has some sort of obsessive compulsive <laughs> issue that he can't stop doing these things. Um, do you think the Department of Justice is eventually going to move on him? Because I will say it is pretty uncanny 
the way he has been able to do all of these things with very little legal consequence from what I've, I've seen. Well, he paid $45 million in fines, which. It's not nothing. But if I did these, if if I did these things, I have a feeling I know where I would be. No. And that's why we all got the hell out of there because we knew where we were going to be. Right. So, you know, I don't live far from a Florence supermax. I don't want to live there though. Um, I don't know. So, you know, here's what's weird about the DOJ. I, I told you I disappeared for like two years, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Went off the grid. One day, uh, two FBI agents show up at my door. And uh, they said, well, we've had a hard time finding you. I'm like, that's good. I wanted it to be hard to be found. Um, but they said, we, we really need to talk to you. And they talked to me about these aircraft. And they were, this was 2019. They were full on investigating. One of them was a former Marine, one's a former CPA. Um, and they were hot bothered. They took all my comms. Uh, they'd actually picked up six months before then uh, our, our former chief compliance officer at the airport and took all of his comms. He's actually a pretty well known guy. He's, he's an author by the name of Adam Sierlowski, um, writes for Vanity Fair, but he's also a very good attorney. And uh, he was my chief compliance officer. Uh, he's the one who did the uh, the project uh, on Somalia, the, the documentary. So Adam had his comms scooped. I had my comms scooped. These FBI agents told me they're hot and bothered and they really want to get into this. And uh, then two months later, they completely disappear. Uh, I get a call from the F- from s- some other FBI agents saying, we just want to make sure you're okay. Um, can't really talk about what's going on, but uh, there's no more investigation. I'm like, oh, really? And then right after the election, um, or right after January 6th, uh, I had two more FBI agents uh, come to my uh, home and tell me investigation's back on. We're full bore again. So I don't know. I I accused them. I I asked them point blank. I said, did Bill Barr shut down the first investigation? And uh, the FBI agent said, no, that's not what happened at all. I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) No, that's not what happened. I mean, this has been like a whirlwind tour and also a um, an almost impossible to otherwise acquire a sort of class on how international contracted commercial security operations work. I mean, this is the kind of information that a lot of people have questions about. And I mean, publicly, you, you never hear anything about. I mean, even some very good reporters I don't think, put together some of the things that you have here today, Greg. Well, the, the difference between me and these reporters is I was in the room. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just not, it's just not me. Right. right? So, you know, there, there's three or four other guys that I wish would speak out, but I understand why they don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, frankly, I would completely just go away. No one would ever see me again if Eric Prince would quit popping up, you know, with – Proposal to Afghanistan, proposal to Ukraine. You know, he shows up on Bannon shows saying, you know, Putin's not that bad of a guy. He doesn't have any, you know, LGBT in his, uh, you know, armed forces. I mean, if he would just, if, if Eric would stay away, I wouldn't have the compulsive need to pop up and say, that's bullshit. 
What do you think? And I, I feel um, in some of my own like writing and reporting over the years, and I, I come to this conclusion, and I want to ask for your opinion about this, because I think it's really important to talk to military veterans out there about this particular subject, that I feel that a lot of guys get out of the military, they get out of special operations, not talking about anyone specifically, let's just say uh, generally speaking, they get out and they do not understand the context of working in the commercial security industry. And just like that SEAL you talked to in Malta, who's like, well, I'm doing what I was told to do. What's the problem? Because you come from a military frame of reference, there's an assumption that your orders are lawful and legal and have been vetted. Um, but oftentimes, special ops guys are hired by commercial companies uh, to do things, and they're told to do things, that are in all actuality completely fucking illegal. And the, the veteran has not pulled themselves out of that mindset yet that they are no longer in the military. They are no longer operating under Title 10 authorities. Um, I wanted, as somebody who's been down this road a number of times, Greg, um, could you speak to that a little bit? I mean, what would you want to tell the SEAL, the Ranger, the Green Beret who's getting out of the military and going into this world? Yeah, I, well, I would say if you're going to go work for a foreign company or a foreign business or a foreign country, th that you're probably going to be in such a gray area, at the very least, that you might want to reconsider it. If you go, want to go work for DynCor or even today's Academy, the former Blackwater, which is squared away, um, if you want to go work for one of those companies, an American company under American rule of law with American compliance, that's a different matter. But mm -hmm. if you decide, look, I'm going to go, I got this gig, and I've heard this from so many guys, I got this opportunity in Saudi Arabia. I'm like, really? You do, do you? Um, so, you know, if you want to get into the private security business, at the very least, get your feet wet with the big American corporation that's got to dot every I cross every T. Start there or with one of the British companies. The, the Brits are squared away too. But if you're going to go off and do something in, in Azerbaijan or Libya or, or, you know, you know, Khalifa Haftar needs some folks. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's just not, a, it's not a good idea yeah. unless you want to go, you know, if you, if you want to go full-blown executive outcomes mercenary, that's where you're going. All right, let's uh, let's get through let's some get questions. questions All right, uh, Casey Lovelace, thank you very much. Would you mind giving us a giving us a close up of the rifles you have in the background, Greg? If not, I understand. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, no, I think what she what someone's pointing to is I, I have a couple of uh, Springfield 1870s trap doors there. Um, so I live in Custer County, uh, Colorado, and uh, in honor of the guns that. Uh, helped get George Custer in the uh, 7th Cavalry uh, slaughtered. Uh, I keep those trap doors there to remember that, uh, you know, you can get a Remington uh, lever action um, and they might have actually done some more damage. Uh, Line of Judea, thank you. Uh, Libya Aircraft and the guys who booked to Malta, which we covered. Uh, thank you. Jackson, thank you. Uh, how has Academy's reputation transformed since Eric's departure compared to PMC's like executives outcomes how kinetic is Academy or other Prince PMCs? Yeah, I think, you know, um, my buddy Jason DeAnker bought um, Academy from Eric in 2010. 
I think they spun it off just in the last year or two. They brought in a lot of compliance uh, and a lot of oversight. And I think that company's pretty well squared away at this point. I, I think they're doing what we'd call a traditional, what I'll call dine course type mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're, they're not out there kind of front line trying to be offensive troops. Do they, do they merge with TC? Yeah. 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 Uh, Zach, thank you for both of your donations. Uh, he has two questions. Uh, who are the earliest leaders agencies <coughs> you can pinpoint who looked the other way and or enabled Prince for standing on principle and stopping him? The earliest leaders? Did yeah, the, early, them? the earliest leaders slash agencies you can pinpoint who either looked the other way and enabled them for standing, uh, uh, you know, staying against them. Well, well, clearly the CIA. I mean, clearly the CIA used Blackwater and then abandoned Eric Prince in his mind. So the CIA, you know, with Kofor Black there, and then, you know, I can't speak to, you know, that would be the the one that uh, empowered him and then walked away, the CIA. Now, Eric has a, a great disregard for the Department of State as well, though. Uh, because if you remember, you know, his contract was a State Department contract, the big one, the WIPS contract. And they completely, um, they would not renew that contract after Nisor Square. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, you know, both State and the CIA. Uh, and then his other question, if you could rewind this narrative, what's the most important thing you'd do differently? And how do you feel about your career in total? Uh, you know, what, what I would do differently, uh, I would never have went into actual business with Eric Prince. Uh, I was fine up until 2010, where I was a uh, advisor. Um, but uh, once I became too close to him, part of the, if you will, the family, uh, I wouldn't have done that uh, again. Um, you know, overall, you know, I, I've lived a interesting life. Um, so, I mean, I, I feel fine with my career. I feel God awful though, that we set up frontier services group in that enabled the Chinese to set up this private security contractor right now. That's got 35,000 employees. I, I feel, I feel literally sick about that yeah. because Eric couldn't have done that without me and Brett McConaughey and Pete Phillips couldn't have done it. Um, Jen Kali, thank you very much. Jackie Lau, thank you very much. Uh, Elliot, uh, thank you. Does Greg think the U.S. will continue to outsource to contractors? On one hand, it seems like a useful tool. On the other, it's clearly a liability. I, well, I, I think they are. I think we largely have now. I, 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 you know, there's no contractor, in my view, operating like uh, Blackwater did the Green Zone. I, I think that's largely over. Um, we can we continue to use contractors, and we we will always um, that will continue. But I don't think the U.S. is in the contracting business anymore. Unfortunately, I think a lot of other countries are in the um, business of uh, of shadowy things, and they actually learn from Blackwater. I mean, you know, Wagner in Russia is the best example. You know, the little green men going into Crimea, uh, technically. Uh, officially do not work for the Russian government. They're mercenaries. Right. And then all over Africa too. Yeah. All uh, over Africa. Carlos, Jacena, thank you. Is one potential reason the U.S. government allows Mr. Prince to continue operating 
That is, organizations or ones linked to them sometimes are used to serve U.S. interests when things are complicated. Yeah, we kind of talked about that a bit. Uh, well, I don't think the U.S. government, you know, Eric hasn't worked for the U.S. government since 2010, as far as I know. Yeah. I mean, he obviously had a different relationship with the uh, with the Trump administration. And, uh, you know, he was trying to get some things done. But to my knowledge, Eric has not drawn any funds from the U.S. government since 2010. So I don't think that that's a relationship that exists anymore. So I, 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 I don't quite understand uh, what we're looking for in that question. Uh, and KJM, thank you. Thank you for the courage in spilling all this tea. Do you have plans to share uh, with a wider audience? What are you talking about? We're huge. Take to the streets We're and huge. tell people about the team house. Um, What's the I'm problem? I am particularly interested in the public learning how to identify ops degrading uh, public dis discourse. Say that again, David. I don't quite understand that. Um, do you have the courage in spilling the tea? Uh, oh, no, you do. Um, <laughs> KJM said, do you have plans to share with a wider audience? I think particularly about the stuff you were talking about in the end about uh, operations to to influence public discourse and public opinion. Oh, the psychological. No, you, you know, they're, they're, it's funny. Uh, our attention span uh, as Americans is about zero for this type of stuff. Um and a lot of it is, is just background noise now. So if I talk about Joe Zamel and George Nader and Eric Prince trying to set up a psychological warfare and influence people on Facebook, that's old news. So now, you know, I'm done. Uh, and I'm actually probably done after this podcast in terms of really talking about Eric. I don't have anything left to say. I wanted to, to tell the story one time, kind of chronologically mm -hmm. from 1996 to 2016. And when people occasionally see me rant, and I only do it when Eric, if Eric doesn't pop up on, if he doesn't pop up, on, I won't anymore. But I do it because I am concerned that it's coming to America. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of angry people in America, and it doesn't take much to incite them. And if you're using CIA types of psychological war warfare on America, and we're bringing it that way, I don't want to be part of that. Yeah. Uh, BPA Izzy, thank you very much for the donation. Uh, Zach, thank you. Should Eric Prince have a U.S. passport? Yeah, he's a, he's a U.S. citizen. He hasn't he hasn't been convicted of any crimes. True. Um, absolutely, he should. I mean, for God's sakes, I mean, we are a country of rule of law. Right. Right. And anything I said that I think today are just you know. If I said I think something's illegal, it's probably because my attorneys told me it's illegal and we need to move on. Right. But until someone from the DOJ slaps a set of handcuffs on someone and that person is then convicted in yeah, a court of yeah, law. You right. can't strip Absolutely. someone of their civil rights right. without due process. Um, and then, uh, Alex, thank you very much. I watched an interview recently on the Sean Ryan show indicating that the contractors in the Nisora Square were innocent. Would you agree? Well, I mean, what were they innocent of? <laughs> I mean, clearly they shot 17 unarmed civilians. And were convicted. Um, and were convicted. So if, if somebody were, were what, what was it intentional or was it just a terrible tragedy? Right. If someone got it, you know, sport, you know, a trigger finger and 
no fire discipline. But what, what are the innocent of? Right. There's 17 dead civilians, and those guys shot them. Yeah. And then we have a couple of questions, or we have one question on Patreon from Isaac. Um, uh, do you know anything about Wagner? Do you think Prince has done any business with them? You know, I've seen reports, but I don't have any knowledge. You know, Eric has a little bit deeper relationship with Russians than he admitted to the, um, the Congressional Committee, uh, where I, I think he said he really didn't know any Russians. Um, in 2014, Eric, uh, I'm going to call him Eric's fixer, but he's like, he's like Eric's Michael Cohn. Uh, you know, Trump's got his Michael, had his Michael Cohn guy that took care of stuff for him. Eric's got a guy named Dorian Barack that takes care of stuff for him. Eric sent Dorian Barack and our chief financial officer to Russia to meet with a company called Rostec, just as the um, <sighs> sanctions were going in place for Crimea. Um, so he knows people in Russia. He does a lot of work or did a lot of work with a investment firm called Renaissance Capital, which is Russian. Um, and obviously, Dmitry Straczynski, who I talked about, he partnered with in Azerbaijan. Uh, but I have no knowledge of him ever meeting with Wagner. And even though I've seen that reported, that's not the Eric Prince I know. Yeah. Uh, and then I just said he has one more question, but we also have uh, Elliot. Oh, also, Jens, what's the story with LaFroy? Elliot. What about it? Are you new to the show? It's, <laughs> it's the greatest scotch and ever. This is created. not a paid uh, advertisement yeah. either. <laughs> yeah, they, they should pay us. They sh it should be, but it's not. Uh, oh, uh, there was a. Re this is also from Isaac. There was a re report that Eric Prince and his sister Betsy DeVos were trying to build an intelligence agency with a former British spy and other intelligence we officers about that. for the Republican Party for the MAGA Party to go undercover. Yeah, with Project Veritas. Yeah, uh, you guys. You read the article on that. I mean, Greg answered as best he could. Yeah, he he asked like dealings to Michael Flynn. Uh, even uh, met with even Barlow, John Gartner. Um, uh, and then contractors have bad name because Blackwater and the group that was beating the pipeline protesters at the Keystone pipeline protests. That no, what, no, no. What no. do you believe they are still? That, that was <laughs> that was Tiger Swan was uh, out there as were a number of other contractors out at Dapple. I don't recall. Any of them actually beating protesters? Um, they were just trying to infiltrate, right? Or, or it, amongst and agitate, yeah. ad, they yeah. were also trying to agitate. But that's a whole other story. That was not Blackwater. Yeah, no. It, but I, I think, but he was saying Blackwater and that company. Um, but do you believe they are still now necessary, or should be managed with better di discipline? I mean, that's what we've been talking about through this whole podcast, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it, you know, it, it's flat out. The U.S. government will be using contractors for as long as there's a U.S. government, and, and there's absolutely a place for them. Yeah. Um, we shouldn't be using mercenaries, uh, but that's different than contractors. Right. And Blackwater was never a group of mercenaries. Blackwater was a group of contractors that did not have the proper oversight. Well, and I mean, there. If anybody understands how these things build up in war, like 
it was a big order to fill and and they it just they just outran their headlights and that's that's not like any malintent that's just sometimes what happens with a business when it blows up like that Greg, can I get you stay for like 15, 20 minutes to do a bonus segment with us after? I got nothing to do. I'm okay. out here in the middle of nowhere. I appreciate it, Greg. I, I, I do have, there are a couple of colorful anecdotes you mentioned that I'll, I'll bring up on the bonus segment that I'd love to hear. Um, so everyone else, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, please check us out on Patreon if you want to support the show and get access to the bonus segments. Uh, check out the sponsors of the show. We really appreciate it. Yep. And next Friday, we're going to have my friend, uh, national security journalist, Zach Dorfman, on the show to talk about some of his work and even work we've done together. Um, so I'm excited to talk to him. Greg, thank you so much, man, for sharing your story with us. Um, like I said, this is like a really unique insider's perspective that you're – I mean, I would not get anywhere else. I don't think – anyone watching would either um and we really appreciate you sharing that with us uh jack dave thanks for having me thank you we appreciate it hey everybody thank you for joining us tonight uh like subscribe yeah subscribe why haven't you subscribed hit the bell icon and join our so patron bias lafroig <laughs> you pay our rent thank you all right we'll see all of you guys next friday thank you with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.